Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Cato Institute's online policy forum. I'm Dan Eikenson, director of the Cato Institute's Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies. I'll be moderating today's discussion, which is titled Supreme Court Box, but Congress should act to restore its authority over trade policy. Let me try to decipher that somewhat cryptic title and lay out a roadmap for this afternoon's discussion. The primary focus of our discussion today will be Section 232 of the Trade Expansion Act of 1962, uh, the so-called national security provision, which gives the president authority to restrict trade in response to a perceived threat to national security. Specifically, we will home in on the legal challenges to the constitutionality of Section 232 brought on behalf of the American Institute for International Steel. After a discussion of the court cases, we will talk a bit about the legislative prospects for reform of 232 the, effect, the effects of the president's tariffs, the seemingly capricious manner in which they have been deployed, and the effects of retaliation. We will also discuss potential problems with other trade laws where the executive may have been given too much discretion or may be overreaching to the detriment of the separation of powers. After the discussion, there will be time for Q&A. You may submit questions via this webpage or Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. And when you do, uh, please, please remember to use the, the hashtag Cato Trade. That's uh, pound Cato Trade. Also, uh, please visit Cato's event event page to find additional materials that are associated with this webcast. Joining me in this discussion are two of the lawyers from the legal team who brought the cases, uh, filed the appeals, formulated and organized the arguments, and, and wrote the briefs. Uh, Donald Cameron uh, is a partner in the firm of Morris, Manning, and Martin. He has been a fixture in the trade remedies community for a long time and has three decades of experience representing multinational businesses, foreign governments, foreign trade associations, uh, and U.S. importers in litigation under the uh, U.S. anti-dumping and countervailing duty laws and the safeguard law. He also advises clients from around the world in international trade disputes and market access. He has extensive experience representing private sector interests and governments in dispute settlement before the WTO and its predecessor, the GATT, uh, in Geneva. Gary Horlick is also uh, an international trade lawyer, currently with the law offices of Gary and Horlick. Gary has also been a fixture in Washington trade policy community for many decades, practicing trade law and working on many high profile cases. Gary served as international trade counsel in the Senate Finance Committee uh, and as head of import administration, the unit within the US Department of Commerce responsible for administering all AD and CBD cases. It's now called uh, enforcement and compliance. Uh, among other things that uh, he had responsibilities for there. Gary is uh, also the author of numerous academic and policy articles and a teacher of law at Yale, Georgetown, Columbia, and elsewhere. Now, before turning it over to Gary and Don, let me, let me start by setting the table with a little background and context. First, of course, Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution gives Congress authority to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, and to regulate commerce with foreign nations. From the founding of the Republic until the early 20th century, Congress did control trade policy, and the president was consistently and properly deferential on that score. In the 20th century, Congress began to prescribe a larger role for the executive branch by passing trade laws that, of course, had to be administered by the executive. As tariffs were lowered and international trade increased, Congress wanted to be sure there was recourse to higher tariffs under certain circumstances, such as the presence of so-called unfairly traded imports, uh, a surge in imports that might cause serious injury to a domestic industry, unfair foreign practices abroad that impeded trade, and threats to national security. 
the president was assumed to be more capable of responding with dispatch, and the president was assumed to be less prone than Congress to knee-jerk reactionary protectionism, so this larger role for the executive was created by Congress. Under these various laws, Congress imposed conditions to circumscribe the president's actions, uh, affirmative demonstration of injury caused by import surges, for example, time limits, limits to the types and magnitudes of remedies that could be imposed, judicial review, et cetera. It turns out, as we've learned these past few years, uh, that Congress must have been asleep at the wheel when it wrote Section 232. The law imposes barely any conditions or constraints on the president. The president has vast latitude to define a, na a national security threat and to decide how to mitigate that threat. Surprisingly, knowing what we know now, the law has been invoked sparingly over the years. Prior to the Trump administration, there were 26 Section 232 investigations, the last one in 2001, uh, resulting in nine affirmative findings by Commerce. In six of those cases, the president imposed uh, a trade action. Four of those cases concern oil, which has historically been an industry or product or geopolitical issue uh, that raises national security concerns. My colleagues, uh, Simon Lester and Juan Zhou, published a paper on 232 last year in which they note that uh, Trump's tariffs on steel and aluminum were the first and second times that trade restrictions have been imposed under this law for a product other than oil or petroleum. President Trump invoked the law to impose import restrictions on steel and aluminum from countries beginning in 2018. The Commerce Department has also investigated and issued reports finding national security threats and recommending remedies in three other cases, autos, titanium sponge, and uranium ore, but those reports were never made public. And the president chose not to impose restrictions on uranium and titanium, but the specter of import restrictions on autos was used menacingly to try to affect various negotiations with Japan, the European Union, Korea, and others. In 2018, AIIS filed its court challenge claiming that Section 232 is unconstitutional for its failure to include any limitations on the president's actions, which technically amounts to a delegation of legislative authority, which violates the non-delegation doctrine. Uh, the case made its way to the door of the Supreme Court. Uh, and here it's worth noting that my Cato colleagues in the Center for Constitutional Studies, Ilya Shapiro and Will Yateman, submitted an amicus brief supporting the plaintiff's claims in this case. Unsurprisingly, but disappointingly nonetheless, the Supreme Court announced last month that it would not hear the case. So you should think of today's event as the Cato Institute granting cert. Uh, the arguments are sound and compelling and should be uh, broadcast to the public. Now, with that brief history, let me turn the mic over to, to Gary, who will provide a chronology of the case, a summary of the arguments, a synopsis of the CIT opinions and other points. Uh, ultimately, I've asked Gary and Don to convince you, the audience, why the Supreme Court should have taken this case and why they would have prevailed. Gary, uh, over to you. I'm going to start out with a brief description of why the, how the case was filed and why. Uh, for many years, I've been outside counsel to AIIS. I should explain AIIS was founded many years ago, 1950, I think, of steel traders. Um, and over time, the business became more complex, uh, businesses sped up, and so now the members of AIS include, in addition to steel traders and importers, uh, people who actually paid the 232 tariffs. It also includes major U.S. railroads, the, some of the largest, uh, uh, Longshoremen's Union locals, uh, port authorities, and um, freight forwarders and other logistics companies. I mention that because um, 
all of those people are, in, are injured by the 232 tariffs, uh, as well as downstream uh, purchasers, of course. They don't pay the tariffs, so under the U.S. legal system, um, they don't, if they win some sort of case, they don't get the money back. They're just hurt. And in this case, this was a lot. So take longshoremen. They lose the hours, the work hours that would come from uh, unloading imported steel. And you never get that back. So we were uh, well suited to bring a case. Our members were hurt, not just the steel traders, but everyone else. Um, we were well aware um, that once the administration appointed a um, a member of the board of the largest U.S. steel producers, Secretary of Commerce, and someone, a lawyer who'd been lawyer who'd been litigating and lobbying for U.S. steel companies for more than 30 years as USTR, that the steel industry would receive special treatment. Uh, we were also aware that, that even starting as soon as they were elected, that they were looking for ways to impose tariffs without Congress, despite the Constitution, and without U.S. courts. Um, and so uh, when they announced the start of a 332 investigation, we weren't surprised. We testified at the hearing, along with literally um, scores of other witnesses, almost all of them in opposition from a wide range of the U.S. economy. And then once the report came out, we started thinking, well, Trump will probably impose tariffs. Um, once he did, uh, we uh, looked at it, started looking at how our members were affected. In the meantime, I should note, uh, an earlier case was filed uh, by um, the U.S. sub of a Russian steel company seeking an injunction, and that was turned down. So that uh, suggested we don't follow that route. Um, so while I was looking around, I was in contact with one of my friends, a former student actually, and also I'd practiced with him. And he asked me one day um, if I knew much, he remembered I had something to do with steel. He asked me if I knew anyone who wanted to sue because someone he knew was interested in the case from a legal perspective. We said, fine, come on over and talk. And that led to us uh, retaining him um, the the uh, man named Alan Morrison, who has a long, distinguished career in public interest litigation and has argued before the Supreme Court something like 25 times, and also hiring Don and his firm because any court litigation takes a lot of hands and a lot of minds. And Don and his team have done a lot of um, U.S. Uh, court litigation in the trade area. So um, that's uh, how the case came about. And I will turn it on over to Don now for what happened. I just note before I do that briefly that from our point of view, we're obviously disappointed the Supreme Court didn't take the case. We were well aware from day one that the odds are against anyone seeking uh, Supreme Court to take a case. The odds are very long that any case gets taken. And so we're disappointed, but from an institutional point of view, uh, we think we did our job. We've raised the issue. It's been all over major U.S. media now for two years. And as Dan noted, it, that turns it over to Congress. Uh, this is core congressional, a, the most core congressional power is the power to tax. 
the U.S. fought a revolution, a war of independence against England, uh, taxation without representation, and um, that's what this is. Over to you, Don. Um, so, I assume I'm on. Uh, AIIS filed its complaint in June of 2018, and the CIA, the Court of International Trade actually granted uh, an extraordinary motion that we had for a three-judge panel. Uh, the court uh, doesn't usually grant those motions, but they did in this case because it was considered a serious constitutional issue. After oral argument, the Court of International Trade uh, made its decision in March of 2019. We immediately filed our appeal to the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, and then also filed a petition for certiorari before judgment, uh, which is an unusual procedure, but seeking to uh, bypass the, the Federal Circuit since these decision, the decision at the Court of International Trade was uh, that it was bound by uh, a Supreme Court precedent and only Supreme Court can overturn its precedents. The Supreme Court denied our, uh, our motion and so we proceeded with the CAFC appeal. After oral argument, the CAFC made its decision in February of 2020 after which we filed our writ of certiorari and cert was denied by the Supreme Court on June 22nd. The substance of AIIS's argument is that Section 232 represents an unconstitutional delegation of legislative power to the president because it contains no boundaries that limit in any way the discretion of the president in adjusting imports. The statute lacks an intelligible principle. Section 232B allows the president to impose remedies whenever imports may threaten to affect the national security. National security is an open-ended concept. Moreover, there are no boundaries on what remedies the president may choose, tariffs, quotas, licensing fees, embargoes, or any combination thereof with no limits on ranges or levels or duration. In summary, Congress gave the president a blank check. While in the past there may have been common assumptions concerning what constituted national security, those assumptions were not binding, as demonstrated by the steel and aluminum 232 decision. The primary response of the government was that the issue of constitutionality uh, of Section 232 delegation was controlled by the Supreme Court's 1976 decision in Algonquin. In that case, the Supreme Court found that Section 232, quote, easily, unquote, met the intelligible principle standard because, first, the statute establishes preconditions to presidential action. What are those? A finding by the secretary that an article is being imported into the U.S. As to so as to threaten to impair the national security. They then said that the leeway the statute gives the president is, quote, far from unbounded. Well, what is that? What is the limits that we're talking about? The president can only uh, act to only to the extent that he deems necessary to adjust imports of such article so that such articles will not threaten to impair the national security. Those are the boundaries cited by the Supreme Court in Algonquin. And 
basically our challenge was that those aren't uh, restrictions at all. In response to the argument that the issue of delegation was settled by Algonquin, AIIS argued that unlike uh, our facial challenge to the constitutionality of Section 232, Algonquin was a challenge to whether the president could impose licensing fees, and the plaintiffs there argued for a narrow reading of the statute to avoid a non-delegation issue. In contrast, our, our appeal is a very broad uh, uh, challenge. The CIT found, the Court of International Trade, or the CIT, found that uh, it was bound by the Supreme Court's decision in Algonquin. The majority of the court began by noting that no statute had been struck down as lacking an intelligible principle since 1935 in cases involving Panama refining and uh, Schecter poultry. After reviewing cases in which the Supreme Court has upheld delegations of authority, they turned to Algonquin and the Supreme Court's statement that there was no looming problem of improper delegation. In response to AIIS's argument that Algonquin had not presented a facial challenge to 232, but rather challenged the president's authority to impose a specific remedy, the court observed that the issue of constitutional delegation had been argued at the district court and the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court directly addressed the issue. AIIS had also argued that the legal landscape of judicial review had changed since Algonquin, and the court rejected that argument. The court then proceeded to AIIS's argument that, a broad, that the broad authority under Section 232, the essentially unlimited definition of national security, as well as the, quote, limitless grant of discretionary remedial powers, unquote, was indicative that the statute did not have an intelligible principle. It had no guidelines. The court referred to the, quote, admittedly broad guideposts that bestow flexibility on the president and seemed to invite the president to regulate commerce by way of means reserved for commerce, leaving little tools beyond its reach. In the end, however, the court basically stated that, quote, nevertheless, such concerns are beyond this court's power to address, given the Supreme Court's decision in Algonquin. Judge Katzman, uh, the third judge, issued a separate opinion, dubitanti, which is unusual. And that is where uh, that type of opinion is unusual. And that's where a judge considers himself or herself to be constrained or bound by precedent, but wishes to suggest an alternative view. Judge Katzman begins by observing that the power to impose duties is a core legislative function. He then framed the issue as follows. Does Section 232, in violation of the separation of powers, transfer to the president in his virtually unbridled discretion the power to impose taxes and duties and that is fundamentally reserved to Congress by the Constitution? He then noted that he had grave doubts. After presenting a detailed analysis of the origins of the fundamental importance of separation of powers, beginning with James Madison's discussion in the Federalist Number 47, he discusses the origin of the intelligible principle in J.W. Hampton, a 1928 Supreme Court case. That case involved the delegation of authority to the president to adjust duties set by statute if the president determined that certain objective conditions were met. 
the Supreme Court upheld the statute in Hampton and enunciated the intelligible principle. Quote, if Congress shall lay down by legislative act an intelligible principle to which the person or body authorized to fix such rates is directed to conform, such legislative action is not a forbidden delegation of legislative power. He then noted that the intelligible principle has been used only two times to invalidate a statute because it impermissibly delegated power vested to Congress uh, in Congress to the executive uh, in Panama refining and Schechter poultry in 1935. After acknowledging the findings of Algonquin, Judge Katzman then proceeded to analyze the breadth of the statute and notes in Aurelia that while the Algonquin court noted the, quote, clear conditions of, to presidential action, there is no statutory requirement that the president's actions match the secretary's report. The president isn't bound in any way by any recommendations made by the secretary, and he is not required to base his remedy on the report or the information provided by the secretary to the secretary. No rationale needs to be provided for the remedy selected, and there is no guidance in the statute with respect to remedies to be taken in relation to the expansive definition of national security. Quote, a definition so broad that it not only includes national defense, but also encompasses the entire national economy, unquote. And he cites the Secretary of Defense in this case, stating that the U.S. military requirements for steel and aluminum each only represent about 3% of U.S. production. Judge Katzman concludes that 232, quote, provides virtually unbridled discretion to the president with respect to the power over trade that is reserved by the Constitution to the Congress. In short, it is difficult to escape the conclusion that the statute has permitted the transfer of power to the president in violation of the separation of powers. He then concluded, if the delegation permitted by Section 232, as now revealed, does not constitute excessive delegation in violation of the Constitution, what would? The Court of Appeals uh, framed the case as to whether Algonquin controls the outcome of the case as the CIT held. They found that Algonquin controls, and it affirmed, quote, without deciding what ruling on the constitutional challenge would be proper in the absence of Algonquin. The CAFC stated that the Supreme Court had ruled on the constitutionality in the process of rejecting the argument that it must construe 232 narrowly in order to avoid the delegation issue. It noted that the ruling in Algonquin was a necessary step to the court's rationale for construing the statute as it did and is therefore binding precedent. The CASC determined that there was no basis to distinguish Algonquin for purposes of the legal question presented in the AIIS challenge. And they noted that AIS, AIIS's argument that recent Supreme Court developments in Gundy v. U.S. and Paul v. U.S., both 2019 decisions, indicated a possible five-member majority in favor of reconsideration of the delegation doctrine but they noted that this speculation does not give the CAFC license to disregard precedent. Our cert petition argued for consideration of the appeal in light of statements by five members of the court in Gundy and Paul 
that a statute does not set that that a statute that does not set boundaries on the scope of the executive's discretion presents a constitutional challenge, uh, presents a constitutional delegation problem. This petition invited the court to reconsider the standard for, for non-delegation. The petition discussed the unbounded breadth of delegation in two, section 232 and noted that throughout the litigation and despite numerous requests from petitioners and from the CIT in oral argument, the government was unable to identify a single action that the president could take regarding imports under section 232 that would exceed this authority as long as he followed procedural rules. The petition also cites the, to the question posed by Judge Kelly at the CIT as to whether the president could impose an embargo on peanut butter under section 232 and whether that could be challenged in court. The answer to the question is that the president could do so and it would not be subject to judicial review. The government did not respond to this question but agreed that the court could not look behind the president's national security determination that's not subject to judicial review. This lack of substantive boundaries presents the question, if Section 232 doesn't violate the non-delegation doctrine, is there any legislative authority that cannot be delegated by Congress to the president? The petition suggested three ways for the court to address Algonquin. It could conclude that Algonquin is distinguishable for the reasons given, i.e. that the challenge to 232 was limited compared to the facial challenge in our case. Second, it could limit Algonquin to the facts of that case. Or third, the Supreme Court has the power to overrule the delegation port portion of Algonquin. In its reply brief, AIIS again noted that the government had failed to address the heart of the AIIS argument that Section 232 has no boundaries. We also reiterated that the government never addressed the teaching of U.S. v. Lopez, a 1995 Supreme Court case, that the inability to identify limits is a fatal flaw when the government seeks to defend a law that is alleged to have exceeded the constitutional boundaries of legislative authority to which Congress is required to adhere. The Supreme Court denied cert in no opinion. Gary? Gary, are you, uh, are you there? I'm here. Yeah. So you want, you when I would add... Some yes. So um, the, Don, uh, the key point is what Don said is a legal matter. There's no limits here. And so this goes back to literally the Constitution. Um, Congress has the power to tax, not the administration, for their reasons why you have to delegate some power, but there have to be some limits or else you're delegating the, the Congress's exclusive power to tax. Uh, and that, uh, I'm surprised the Supreme Court doesn't want to explore that. The, but Congress has to. Uh, when I was actually interviewed for my job at Senate Finance Committee, the first question I was asked in the job interview was, where does Congress get its ability to impose tariffs? And the, it's the answer, Article 1, Section 8. And this goes back 
literally to English constitutional history and the American Revolution. So this is a core principle and the president's ability to raise money without Congress and spend money without Congress, which is also being litigated, is uh, fundamental to the separation of powers that underlies our system of government. Uh, so this is not just about tariffs on steel. This is about a lot more. And with the absence of limits that Don points out, there's really an amazing amount that the um, president can do to the U.S. economy. We, we're, as, we, the, as the world has become more intertwined economically, the ability to interfere with trade has much broader implications than it did even in 17. 89. Gary, if I can ask you to uh, comment on the question of whether judicial options are, are completely exhausted. Uh, I understand that there is a case uh, before the CIT uh, brought by, I think, importers of Turkish steel, where they're challenging some statutory elements of 232, but I'm wondering whether if that makes its way up to the Supreme Court, or could it make its way to the Supreme Court? Would there be uh, the possibility that some of these delegation issues could be revisited there? There have been several um, cases brought subsequent to ours at the Court of International Trade on failures to comply with the procedures. Um, the the um, Section 232 doesn't have many procedural requirements, but you have to have a report. It's supposed to be public, I guess, but they haven't made it. And in fact, Congress passed a special law requiring the administration make that one public, and the administration has refused to comply. Um, but uh, most of those, I believe actually all of those complaints also put in the constitutional issue of delegation, which we raised. So yes, there is a possibility. I note that the CIT has not looked favorably on the administration's attempt to impose 232 duties without even paying attention to the procedural requirements, much less complying with them. But I'm just wondering whether there is a way for a case that is addressing statutory issues to somehow broaden to uh, entertain these uh, these delegation issues by the time we got to the, it, it, it would it be a matter of the government uh, defending its actions and 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 having and, and having to bring up the delegation issue itself. Well, actually, since the government keeps losing these cases, and I'll say briefly, and then let's hear Don's view. Since the government keeps losing these cases, it's up to the government to appeal. Uh, right and. Um, so that would be entertaining if the government wanted to uh, appeal along those lines. Uh, if I were the government, you know, having so far survived our challenge, um, I think I'm not sure the lawyers would tell them to do that. Uh, Don, over to you. Yeah, yeah. I, Dan, I think the the answer to your question is that the chances are remote. Okay. And I think remote is giving it a better chance than it really has. The Turkish case, for instance, is uh, focused really on the narrow issue of the additional 25% tariff that was placed on imports from Turkey 
for a period of time. That that 25% has been since been removed. And um, the challenge there is really uh, procedural because there there was no new finding and they they basically retrofitted the original finding and and squeezed an additional 25% for whatever reason. Um, and the, the court is not looking favorably on that, but um, I don't believe that that's going to end up in a uh, constitutional challenge. There are there are some others, but um, you know we'll have to see how it plays out. But I, I I think that the I think Gary's right on that, and I would I would view the chances as remote. I mean, if this if this if this issue on two thirty two is ever going to be addressed, it's got to be addressed by Congress. That's that's the reality of it. Well, that that's where we should turn our discussion next, then, since the judicial let options me, are at least. Let me add one thing. The Turkish 25% was openly and admittedly by the administration imposed to squeeze Turkey on a completely unrelated matter. And what that right. shows is the lack of limits means the president, any president, not just this one, could use threats of 232 against Americans as well, against American business, any given American business that that imports anything and say, by the way, if you don't hire my son-in-law, oops, I didn't mean that. Uh, if you don't hire someone I want you to hire, I'm going to impose a tariff on your imports. Nothing. The, the Algonquin, the, the Supreme Court reliance on Al Algonquin means that would mean that, hey, the president can do it. There are no limits. It's peanut yeah. butter. Right. So legislatively, you know, we saw in the current Congress some efforts to try to rein in the president on Section 232. There was uh, legislation from uh, Senator Portman and Senator Toomey, different bills. I think there was some companion legislation emerging in the in the House. Uh, but on the Senate side, at least, uh, Chairman Grassley didn't seem like he could deal with the politics of choosing one over the other and and, and bringing this forward and and uh, doing something that might be perceived as cutting off uh, the president at the knees. So nothing came to fruition. And I'm wondering, um, you know, could, what 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 do we have to look forward to going in the future? And and, and let, let, let me actually parlay that with a uh, with a question that was a good question that was asked here by uh, by Kent Jones. And he says, you know, would a Democratic Congress, House and Senate, with a Democratic president amend Section 232 to remove the unlimited presidential discretion that Trump used? And that's that's really the the uh, the, the million dollar question going forward. Right. Uh, you you want to take a stab at that, yeah. Don? Yeah, uh, yeah. Let me just let me just start with that, and and I'm sure Gary's going to have other uh, other observations, but a couple of things. And I, I get the point about a Democratic Congress and, and a, a Democratic president, but there's two things about it. And uh, citing to Senator Grassley might be one vehicle to do that. I mean, it's interesting that Senator Grassley was unable to, to bring this when the one of the primary victims of Section 232 was agriculture that was retaliated against. They were, they, the agriculture was retaliated against first by China, then by Canada, then by Mexico. Those have been removed since the since the uh, 
the NAFTA. Uh, but then we also had uh, had the European. And agriculture is always going to be a uh, retaliation target, and it will be a retaliation target uh, for the simple reason that that is uh, a very hot button economically for the United States. Uh, and so it makes sense, and it's also a big component of our exports. Um, it's possible that a Democratic Congress wouldn't want to do this, but if you think about this for just a minute, if, unless you're going to assume that the Democrats will always be in power, then you have to deal with the question of, do you really want to have, have presidential discretion to be unlimited when you've seen how it can be abused and you also see that there are, are no controls whatsoever on it? And so even though I think that, that it's a valid question as to whether or not they, they would want to do so, the Congress ought to... It, ought to take take account of itself and take back some power. In other words, the president could still act if the if the Congress says, okay, but but once you made a decision, we have to be able to look at it and we get to decide whether or not to approve it or not. That would make some sense from Congress's point of view, because right now they've defaulted and given all of the power to the president and they basically have no role whatsoever. And uh, so it may be that, that a Democratic uh, Congress and president wouldn't want to do so, but I would suggest that as, as a long-term proposition, it's in, in everybody's interest that they do so. If I could just add to that, uh, first I would give Senator Grassley some credit um, for raising it. Typically, the chairman of the Finance Committee does not, him or herself, introduce legislation. Um, very rare that they sponsor it. But Senator Grassley was quite forthright in raising it. Uh, and uh, yes, agricultural interests suffered greatly from this retaliation. And the attempt to buy them off with giving them money did not make up from the damage. Being the Agricultural groups in the U.S. have spent years, decades, trying to build markets overseas. And losing those markets um, to retaliation doesn't mean that the people overseas are not buying agricultural products. They're buying them from our friendly competitors in Brazil, Canada, etc. Uh, so markets we worked for decades developing suddenly go to someone else. And it's very hard to get those back. These are not, everyone says, oh, these are fungible commodities. No, they're not when you're on the ground. You have to sell consumers uh, particularly for things consumers buy, which include pork and beef, both of which are made in Iowa, you have to sell them on American pork and beef. Um, so um, he, he raised it. Two bills were introduced, one by Senator Toomey, a Republican from Pennsylvania, and one by Senator Portman, a Republican from Ohio. Uh, Senator Portman, I might note, was formerly USTR. Um, and... Um, that tells you something. Both of those states have major steel producers in them, but both of those senators must have been hearing a lot from the people who were hurt by the tariffs, which are steel manu manufacturers who purchase steel. And all the, any economic analysis you want to do show the number of jobs manufacturing things made of steel in the U.S., is more than 20 times the amount of 
people employed by the steel industry. I think the Bureau of Labor Statistics puts it at 100,000 steel workers. The steel industry claims 140,000. Yeah. That's out of a total employment north of 160 million. So the yeah. fact that senators in Pennsylvania and Ohio introduced legislation to regularize 232 tells you something. The two key points, and I'll be brief, one is what the degree of congressional oversight is. One of the bills says Congress can, can vote to override, but as we've seen in other areas, that's meaningless because the president can veto that. And so in effect, you need two thirds of both houses. Difficult anytime, and certainly if one house is the president's party in any administration. Right. Secondly, the alternative is Congress has to approve it. The president may be able to do it for a month or two, but then the Congress has to approve it. So obviously that's more protection for congressional prerogatives. Uh, the second major aspect is, and there are several, but the second major aspect is proposals to limit the duration. Um, and that's a good idea, but not instead of congressional review, but in addition to congressional review. If you limit the duration to three mm -hmm. years, no congressional review, um, then the president can just do it again. And anyhow, cutting, imposing this for three years without following any rules, any limits, uh, causes huge commercial damage to American manufacturers and consumers. So bottom line, um, Senator Grassley decided that he didn't have the votes or he would have moved it, I think. The Democrats, the Democrats in control of the House, I think, were waiting to see what the Senate Republicans did. So, after the election, depending on who wins the White House, who wins the Senate, who wins the House, you have to go back and see if there's any appetite for taking this on. Um, I note that um, whoever wins November. The first order of business is the economic crisis and the pandemic. Um, so um, Congress would not do this first. That said, this is explicitly a matter of con Congress giving up its prerogatives to the president and failing to put enough limits on, any limits in this case. If I can follow up on that last point that you made, because I mean, there are these institutional uh, uh, forces at play here that, that are wreaking havoc on the Constitution. I mean, would a President Biden, we seem to think, well, maybe Biden will be uh, willing to relinquish some of the power that has accrued to the executive. Uh, would a President Biden sign legislation that effectively reduced uh, statutory powers? Um, or would he be thrilled to follow Trump's precedent and use 232 as leverage to compel trade partners or others to do to do whatever he wants. And on top of that, isn't Congress seems quite content ceding its authority to the executive branch. Uh, it doesn't like to make decisions about uh, politically uh, um, uh, uh, potentially dangerous uh, decisions. So uh, it seems to me that they like to have the president uh, take the heat for bad decisions on trade or military intervention uh, or cheer those decisions when the public embraces them. So, you know, ha, ha, do, do we need Congress to, first of all, have the interest in, in reasserting its Article I authorities uh, and in a meaningful way? 
uh, what, what's, what's going to have to happen here? Briefly, this is an aberration. Even Congress is, as recently as 10 years ago, cared about this stuff. And so uh, this is pretty aberrational, and it's only one party to be blunt. Um, secondly, any White House counsel's office, knee-jerk reaction is going to be, we're not accepting, we oppose limits on presidential prerogative. Uh, that's, so that's what the White House, any White House counsel's office is going to say that. The odd factor here is if Vice President Biden wins the presidency, the president will be someone who served six terms in the Senate <laughs> and certainly defended Senate and congressional prerogatives while he was a senator. So um, it, this is unusual. I mean, um, uh, President Obama had served in the Senate, uh, I think, um, one term, no, four years. Um, President Bush, not at all. President Clinton, not at all. Um, you have to go back, um, you know, President Bush had had two terms, Bush Sr., two, two years in the Congress, um, maybe four. Uh, Biden's really not, you know, he's, he's much more experienced than anyone since Johnson. So I consider it an open question. I don't know where he would come out. Don, do you, do you want to add anything or should we get to the next question? No, I, I, th I think Gary covered it. I mean, we don't know what is, we don't know how that's, how it's going to turn out. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I have some, I have some underlying hope. <laughs> I guess it would be that, that uh, somebody would care about, about a rational trade policy. Yeah. Well, as we were discussing this, there were other questions that popped up in the queue that were related to the answers that you gave. Uh, Tori Smith from Heritage asked uh, about uh, the prospects for reform in the next Congress. I think we sort of addressed that. Leslie Katzenmeyer from YouTube asked a similar question. Uh, um, uh, Kat Lucero uh, addressed, raised questions that I think were answered in, um, in the course of, of every responses to, to my question. I wonder if, if, if we can just shift the, uh, actually there was one more, there's, there is one more question here that, uh, that takes us in a different direction. And that's from uh, my colleague, uh, Simon Lester, who asks about uh, the section 232 tariffs on steel and aluminum are being challenged at the WTO. What, if anything, do you expect to come out of the eventual WTO rulings in that case? Just some interesting legal reasoning for academics to write about, or any actual impact. Well, I don't, well go ahead. Well, I mean, I think uh, first of all, there's a problem with the WTO right now because whatever comes out of the WTO is going to have limited value until until we actually have a functioning uh, appellate body, which we don't have right now. Um, yeah. If you look at the uh, the case involving, I believe it's Saudi Arabia and Qatar, uh, it would appear that the WTO is not going with the United States uh, argument. The United States argument is, so what if if we don't meet the requirements of Article 21, uh, the ability to take Section 232 uh national security actions is a self-determining issue 
that is not subject to review by uh, by the WTO or anyone else. Um, the uh, the WTO did rule in the in the Saudi case that um, they do not that it does not agree that this is a self uh, self determining principle, and if not, the United States is not going to be in good shape uh, with respect to the WTO because uh, we're not even in the same in the same area code as Article 21, which is basically national security uh, exceptions in time of war or nuclear nuclear issues, et cetera. Uh, so the reason that there was unilateral uh, retaliation against the United States was that basically uh, the actions taken under 232 didn't make the, meet the uh, uh, the laugh test in terms of credibility, uh, international credibility. So I don't think that the, uh, that the WTO is going to offer a, uh, a refuge for the United States. Yeah. Agree. Um, uh, there were three, there have been three sets of cases brought to the WTO, one involving Russia and Ukraine, the Saudi one that Don mentioned, and uh, the U.S. 232s. Until then, the WTO had never been forced to decide on the U.S. argument that you can you're your own judge and jury. Um, but once you force the WTO to decide, two things are immediately apparent. First, the Russia-Ukraine one, there was actually a shooting war going on. Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, the reasoning, of the, the rush reasoning of the panel, you can argue about, but there was a shooting war. The Saudi gutter one is pretty close to a cold war, let's say, but clearly, you know, state to state hostile movement. And hmm. the U.S. one is tariffs imposed on imports uh, for nakedly political, not even political, just to please the lobbyists who've taken office in the administration. Um, and it wouldn't have passed Congress. Um, because users would have blocked it. So the U.S. one obviously is the most naked, nakedly exposed. So as Don pointed out, so there have been two sets of panels now, uh, the Russia-Ukraine and the Saudi one, saying, no, it's not self-judging. But if you think about it for a minute, actually five seconds, you couldn't have a trade agreement that allows one party to decide that it can do whatever it wants. You might as well not have an agreement. Right. Well, but before we turn away from Section 232 to talk about some of the other trade laws, there were a couple more questions here that uh, touch on different elements of, of the discussion that, that I'd like to pose to you guys. Uh, Christian Hetzner from Twitter asks, uh, he points out that in November, it looked as if the risk of punitive tariffs on EU passenger cars had passed as the six month deadline for Trump to act expired. How great is the risk that he can still follow through or is it just a useful cudgel versus the EU? Is any statutory uh, um, uh, restrictions here? Don, why don't you do it? Yeah. Don? Well, there are statutory restrictions. It's basically, this is another aspect of the Turkish appeal. In other words, hmm. there are basic procedural requirements in the law. There aren't much, but one of them is to have a report and then there are deadlines. In, if the uh, 
if the procedures are not followed, then, then there's going to be a problem. The problem with procedural issues, though, is that, that it never passes, right? In other words, yes, that deadline may have, follow, may, may have, may have gone away. If the, if the administration decides tomorrow, you know, I think this might be a useful issue to raise before the election, although how that would help in South Carolina, which has the largest BMW plant in the world, I'm not sure. But putting that aside, um, they could easily just say, look, uh, I asked for another report. And then the, the secretary, already having a report, could then supply him with a new report and the time limit starts all over again. So I don't think that, hmm. that, that, that the fact that the time has passed uh, means that the threat has passed, although I think uh, it, it is, I don't think that this is uh, so much of a live issue, but uh, proceed, the procedural, uh, the procedural rules are, they're, they're, they're useful if they work in your favor to challenge a specific action, but but in the long term, there's nothing procedural that can't be that can't be uh, uh, taken care of fairly easily by the administration, since unlike, for instance, uh, Section 201, where the the primary the the initial basis is an affirmative determination of of serious injury caused by imports by the International Trade Commission, which is an independent agency and not controlled by the White House. Well, one of the reasons I suspect that 232 was used is they didn't want an independent review by an independent agency that might divide up steel into 31 different products rather than calling steel from wire rod, pipe and tube, sheet and strip, specialty steel, steel. Right. So, right. you know, that 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 was very in, that would be very inconvenient. So 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 that I think that's the basic answer to that. I would just add that the um, the the threat of autos, I never took I didn't think they'd ever do it. But you never know with uh, what the president will do. Uh, but the auto industry is way, way, way larger than the steel industry. And disrupting it would have serious stock market effects and the president current president seems to value the stock market and the economy and the auto industry is completely intertwined internationally as don mentioned the biggest bmw plants in the us for example and it exports something like two-thirds of its production right all the all the big us producers meaning the, the U, Ford, GM, and um, Fiat Chrysler um, have operations overseas. They all, you know, they all deal internationally. They're, they're very advanced companies. Some of our steel companies bluntly aren't. Um, and so, and they're all transitioning to elect, electric and autonomous vehicles and that is a completely international um enterprise you this is uh, your car will be as it already it already is it, cars are in effect computers already an autonomous vehicle which we will see um is a product of international collaboration at extreme amounts so this is 1968 thinking 
you know, protecting steel is pretty 1968 thinking, but protecting cars, none of the car manufacturers want it. <laughs> they yeah. don't want protection yeah. from European cars. There was, you know, there's, um, there's one other. There was one other thing that I think was is useful to think about with respect to, to automobiles. It may be that they never would have done it, but I believe that the Europeans thought that it was a serious threat. And I think that that accounts for the European decision not to accept any quota agreement with the United States on steel. And once the United States imposed 232 duties on the U.S. to retaliate, uh, unilaterally. And I believe the reason was very simple. If they were going to have to draw a line, right, a line in the sand, they were going to do it on steel because they didn't want to have to get there on automobiles after having given it up on on, on steel. So uh, so I think that, that, that autos has played a big role in this. And I think that, that it played a role in the European uh, reaction to this. I have to add one other thing. So, as was mentioned, despite specific congressional legislated requirement, the, the the Commerce Department refuses to comply with U.S. law and provide a public copy of the report. The steel report's public. The steel report is embarrassing. Yeah. Literally, the numbers don't add up. If it were subject mm -hmm. to APA, Administrative Procedures Act, it would be thrown out just because the report's garbage. The U.S. Yeah. The U.S. Department government actually knows a fair amount about steel from 40 years of protecting it. But the U.S. government doesn't really know that much about industries because under our system, we don't run them. Our government doesn't right. run them. So I'm guessing the auto report's even more important than the steel report. Okay. Um, one, one more question about 232, and, and, and uh, those of us in the trade policy community were sort of baffled uh, by the fact that uh, the president launched his trade war with China while you know, soon after hitting all of our allies with uh, tariffs on under 232 on steel and aluminum, and maybe think it might be a better idea to try to mend fences with, uh, with, with allies and work together and come up with a, with a solution or help to rein in some of the practices in China that we object to. Uh, so Mara Lee from uh, International Trade Today asks, do you think a Biden administration would drop 232 tariffs quotas on South Korea, Europe, and Japan because he prefers to work with allies to confront China? And if so, does that undermine momentum to reform 232? So if, it, if it's taken off the front pages of the news, uh, is it going to go away and, and only to rear its ugly head later? Well, I think it's a good question. Um, I I find it difficult to believe that they would that that 232 would be dismantled piecemeal, uh, as being suggested. Um, and uh, the speculation that you had at the beginning of the question about, well, you know, if China was was the adversary, why why didn't we? we uh, make alliances and clearly the answer is because this administration doesn't work with alliances. Uh, they destroyed the, uh, the, the TP, uh, TPA, uh, uh, the, the, um, uh, the Trans-Pacific Agreement, uh, which was actually yeah. designed, 
trade party to 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 which was designed to uh, to build alliances uh, uh, with respect to China. I would I would suspect that, that Biden Biden's team will have a very different trade policy. What it would look like, I don't know, but um, I don't think China will be off the front page. But uh, we'll see about two thirty two. I do not expect that once the election occurs, uh, if if uh, Vice President Biden were elected, that. 232 goes away immediately, but um, I think that it's uh, it will be on the table. I would just add, it's once once someone gets protection, they don't give it up easily. I dimly recall, and Dan, you might know better, and your colleagues, don't we still protect mohair production? Um, but um, yes. so these, these things don't go away easily. Having said that. Um, the section of the trade policy is not something you do based on emotion or dim memories of 1968. Trade policy is game theory now more than anything else. Game theory mean, is, means you can't do things just by yourself. You have to take into account what others are going to do. We, the U.S., are falling behind in the trade policy field because we are not doing that. The EU has full FTAs with Japan. They're, they're almost finished one with Mercosur, which includes Brazil. And um, the, the EU does trade, I'm not saying this is not saying we're good and they use bad or vice versa, but they are following a logical trade policy, including for dealing with China. Uh, so what would President Biden do? Well, the best guess we have is uh, he was a very prominent part of the decision-making process in the Obama administration. The Obama administration had a very logical, I would say, pro-U.S. It was America first in the real sense, and a rational approach to that is to get allies. So TPP right. plus TPP was not done to attack China. It's not an emotional or some sort of video game with China. It's China's very large. And, uh, and so to get better bargaining power, we were bulking up by making deals with the rest of the world. If they'd gone through with TPP plus TTIP and a few other countries would had to, would had to have joined, to the, uh, um, the, uh, and we wanted to join Norway, etc. That would have been about 70% of world GDP. At that point, China has to deal with you. Again, this is not a war. This is not a game, except in the game theory sense. So I would project that the Biden administration will follow a much more cold-blooded analysis than people nostalgic for 1968. And it would give better results for the U.S. Wow. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, let, let, in, in the remaining time that we have, which is about 13 minutes, uh, I, I want to shift gears a little bit to some of the other laws. And I'm going to start by just uh, so extracting a, uh, a piece from the petition, uh, the AIS petition for cert at the Supreme Court, which uh, foreshadows a worsening imbalance of power uh, in the following sentence, it says, uh, although Algonquin dealt with delegation only under Section 232, unless this court intervenes, that opinion 
as well as lower court opinions like those in this case, will be used by the executive branch to argue that delegation challenges to other statutes are similarly foreclosed. Now, you may not have been thinking exclusively about trade laws, uh, but uh, it, it does uh, muster up a concern about Section 201 uh, under, of the Trade Act of 1974, 301, anti-dumping, countervailing duty. Do you see delegation problems in under any of those laws? And if not delegation problems, uh, excessive uh, discretion granted to the executive problems? Uh, Want to start with Gary? Yeah, so we're, we're seeing that already, obviously. So... As it, I'm the co-author many, many years ago of the only article I've ever seen uh, stating that at least part of Section 301 is subject to judicial review. Uh, UFTR believes nothing is they can do whatever they want, and they have done whatever they want. So even then, 301 has a few, barely more, in, in practice, it's not limited, but they can't do unlimited tariffs as much as... Um, uh, 232 now. Um, 301, um, the, what you saw was, you know, this uh, death-beating contest with China, and we've gotten some good results in the agricultural area. I think a lot of those would have shown up if Senator Clinton had won the, uh, the presidency, uh, but, um, you know, you take them where you get them. So, a lot of the uh, non-tariff barriers into China for U.S. ag stuff are under control, um, but we didn't get what the stated goals were uh, with China. So we put tariffs that U.S. consumers paid. There have been plenty of studies now. U.S. consumers were paying, I think, something like $800 each for President Trump's war. U.S. farmers, oh my God, um, we, we, they got killed. Um, um, Trump came up with $28 billion, and that doesn't begun, begin to measure the damage. So, um, so it was a huge cost to U.S. interests to attack China, and they didn't really have a plan for that. They visibly didn't have a plan for it. Um, mm -hmm. So it shows you why you know, Congress better look again at what, what limits need to be placed on 301, which again, I repeat, under the U.S. Constitution is solely the power of Congress. It is not foreign affairs under the Constitution. It is um, Article One, Section 7 and Article One, Section 8. Um, and as I mentioned, just if you want to get into this, this starts with James I raising a tariff without going to Parliament and his son winding up getting his head cut off. Um, and so the, the power to tax is central to this, and Congress has to take it back with 301. Um, 201, uh, there's, as Don said, under 201, the president has some limited, so, uh, some limits on his or her power uh, of the remedy, but it still doesn't take account of retaliation and uh, the impact on U.S. Uh, users and consumers. And that's Congress's job. Congress's job is to strike a balance in policy debates. And if they want to delegate that job to the president, they have to guarantee that that happens. Um, the anti-dumping and countervailing duty laws, again, do nothing to protect Americans, American manufacturers, American consumers. 
And Congress has to strike that balance. And if the administration doesn't, which it doesn't, um, or the, then the um, president, the Congress should. Uh, at the moment, um, the both 201 and um, 232 uh, dumping and countervail requires, Don pointed out, an affirmative decision by the International Trade Commission. Say what you will, and Don and I, and all the other, a lot of the other lawyers on both sides of this fight sue them all the time. Um, but <laughs> they make decisions that defy political orthodoxy coming from the White House. Um, they do, and uh, you can quarrel with them, but they are not a dependency of the president, unlike the Commerce Department um, or the uh, U.S. Trade Representative present. Uh, so um, we're having, I, I consider this aberrational, what's going on, but uh, you can appoint, obviously the people on the ITC are appointed by the president, but with staggered terms. Uh, so a lot depends on who the next president is, but bottom line, um, uh, the, the problem in dumping countervail is, is time is the courts do reverse things. Don's done a very good job for his clients winning at the CIT when one of the agencies goes wrong uh, and the Commerce Department is not in its best moment at the moment on that score. Um, but um, um, but three years, doing, winning three years later does not, and the, does not re make up for the commercial damage. I have to point out one thing which none of us has mentioned. American exporters get killed by these laws overseas. Other countries apply these. The U.S. is the number four target of um, anti-dumping laws. I, I think it's actually higher for countervailing duty laws. On the ag side, the following U.S. exports have been subject to these cases overseas. Beef, pork, chicken, wheat, rice, soybeans, mm. and soy meal. Uh, corn, uh, cotton, uh, apples, beer. Um, so, um, and um, so everyone in Washington pretends, oh, we can do whatever we want. The golden rule applies here for all the trade stuff. It can, what we can do, what is done to us, what we do will be done to us. And guess what? Hmm. In 1968, we could take that attitude we cannot. If we don't export, we are just as dead as any other country. Gary, Dan, we, we wrote would, a paper back in 2002 uh, foreshadowing that problem and warning that U.S. exporters are going to be in the crosshairs as other countries develop their anti-dumping practices. And sure enough, that, that has what, that's what has happened. I'm sorry, Don, please go ahead. Yeah, just just one thing, uh, Gary mentioned the the issue of retaliation in Section 201, and I think this that it's an interesting contrast actually to what happened in this case. Um, the president does have the ability to take action in sec under Section 201. In 2000, 2001, the uh, president self initiated safeguards action against all steel products, uh, and then that went to the ITC. Uh, Shortly thereafter, there was also a petition uh, under 232 uh, against steel and, um, and iron ore. Um, 
In the case of Section 201, there were extensive hearings. I think there were about eight days of hearings that lasted about eight hours apiece. That's on the, on the injury alone. They divided up steel into 31 different products. They found injury on, I believe, 15 or 16 products, and that went to the president. The ones that they found no injury on, of course, were excluded from any further proceedings. The president mm. did take action, but there was no retaliation for the action that was taken. Why not? Because there is a safe harbor for safeguards actions uh, for the first three years under the WTO. So no retaliation was taken against the United States. The issue of, of the president's actions were, was taken to the, to the WTO. And uh, we won that case and the president uh, dismantled uh, the safeguards relief. And he actually did it one year early, which is the, makes it the first steel, uh, national steel program that was actually dismantled early rather than, rather than late. As for the Section 232, the president issued his decision uh, shortly after 9-11. It was in October of that year, I believe, that he issued the decision. And it was with, within, after 9-11, the Secretary of Defense said that imports of steel are, do not pose a threat to national security, and the decision by the Commerce Department was negative. So uh, it shows you what happens. Then, of course, we turn to this to, to the current case. And in the current case, there was unilateral uh, retaliation. Again, why? Because it did, because it did not make the, meet the, the, uh, the laugh test for, uh, for whether or not uh, national security action could be taken consistent with Article 21 of the GAAP. Mm-hmm. You're, you guys mentioned the court cases and, and Don's success at the CIT over, over the years. And, and to me, those cases uh, reflect the D Department of Commerce's sort of abuse of discretion. Uh, there's no real necessarily there's no delegation issue there, anything like that. But there's a particular right. uh, in, in 2015, the law, the anti-dumping law was changed again. And this concept of particular market situation was introduced. And this is probably something we shouldn't get into since we're down to our last couple of minutes. But uh, do you find that particularly onerous, <laughs> Don? Uh, do, you, do you see any delegation issues there? Because Con Con Commerce Department is given authority to do to 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 do whatever it wants, uh, in, in, if it finds that it can't come up with a you know if the the, the data aren't useful, aren't usable, if there's a market distortion. So, just some quick right. thoughts on that, well, and then we're going to have to wrap up. All right. Very quickly. First, um, you have to understand that particular market situation, number one, was already in the law, but it was in a different section of the law. Uh, yes. Secondly, particular market situation is also in the anti-dumping agreement. So uh, it, conceptually, uh, I get it. The real problem with, with PMS is that it is a total wild card and there are no limits on the discretion of the, uh, at least the way the Commerce Department looks at it. Uh, in a case involving Korea, they actually uh, took the position after pressure from uh, Peter Navarro. I know this would be a big shock to everybody on the phone, uh, uh, who suggested that uh, 
if oil country tubular goods from Korea aren't found to have a dumping margin, then this will be bad for an investment by Tenaris in uh, in Texas. And yeah. there, that's a particular market situation. So the Commerce Department reversed its uh, preliminary determination that there was no uh, particular market situation uh, as a result of Korean subsidies to hot roll coil. And they found instead that an adver- basically an adverse uh, facts available decision in, uh, in the case of hot roll from Korea uh, of a 50% or so 50% subsidy. Uh, now, the 50% is not a real figure. It's basically they found that the company was not cooperative. And as a result, the Commerce Department imposed a 50% uh, countervailing duty. Uh, on imports from Korea, which was subsequently found in the first administrative review to be about, I don't know, 0.5% or something. Um, But the Commerce Department used that adverse facts available figure as a quote-unquote market distortion. That's the level to which this PMS has gone to. So you're going to tell me that is a you are you have a distortion in the Korean steel market because of a subsidy which has not been determined to exist in reality, but we have a nominal figure and we are going to take that no, or a notional figure and we're going to take that notional figure and treat it as if it's a real subsidy that is somehow passed along to pipe producers. Well. If you can show me how that would would occur in reality, that might be fine. But of course, that's not possible. But that's what that's what had to be litigated. And not only that, after being shot down in the in the Court of International Trade, the Commerce Department proceeded to use that same finding in about two or three other uh, cases uh, until the uh, until the administrative uh, review in in hot rolled. So. Mm-hmm. To, to to suggest that there is an abuse of discretion at the Commerce Department in the implementation of particular market situation is really a vast understatement. Right. Okay. There is a court of international trade to actually review it. <laughs> yes. Well, let, thank you both, uh, Don and Gary, for, for joining me today to talk about these issues. Thank you to all in the audience uh, for attending today's events. We had a lot of questions come in. I apologize for apologize if I wasn't able to get to them all. There will be a video recording of this event available on the Cato webpage tomorrow, and I hope you will come back and join us for future events. We have a, one week from today, we have a, a, a piece, a forum on the future of the WTO. Please, please join us then. Thank you all very much.